0: Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm good. And Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. How's it going?
1: It's going well, thank you, Andrew. How about
0: you? I'm doing good. Hanging in there. Today we're joined by the veteran rock and roll tunesmith, Marshall Crenshaw, whose beloved body of work encompasses 10 studio albums, as well as a variety of EPs and compilations and live discs. He got his first break in 1978, playing John Lennon in the musical Beatlemania. Songs such as Someday, Someway, Cynical Girl, Whenever You're On My Mind, co-write songs including The Jim Blossoms Till I Hear It From You, among others. He's appeared in Motion Pictures, uh, he even portrayed Buddy Holly and La Bamba back in 1987, and has had his songs covered by the likes of Bette Midler and Ronnie Spector, to name a few. He also recently regained ownership of the five acclaimed albums he released on Razor and Tie, label between 1994 and 2003. Welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast, Marshall Crenshaw.
2: Thank you, Andy, and hi, guys. Marshall, glad you're here, man. So, I'm going to dive back into your catalog a little bit, but first, let's just start off with the last thing that Andy was talking about. Um, so, that was almost 10 years worth of your stuff. Tell us what was going on with that, why you just got back the rights to that stuff.
3: Well, it uh, was in the contract, you know, it's just lucky for me. I had a, a smart lawyer who thought of inserting that in there, and I didn't ask them to do it. They didn't balk. <laughs> and, uh, you know the time the day on the calendar rolled around and you know y- yippee i was like really you know that, that yeah. there, no, nothing like that was in any of my major label contracts i just uh
2: so what was it like come 20 years you get the rights to you they're yours again or uh, it was 15 15 years yeah
3: yeah Uh huh.
2: okay well congratulations that's awesome that's fabulous and i noticed when i was going back through uh just Apple music that I didn't see. I didn't see your first album in there. I saw that some of the songs, of course, in compilations, but I didn't see that yeah. record on its own in there. Hmm. Um, Do you already know the answer to that question? I don't know.
3: Oh, okay. Cause that's another cool thing is uh, yay for us. Copyright laws. I uh, hmm. was able to claim the us copyrights for my Warner brothers recordings about, two years ago or so and uh you know i'm what i keep saying to people i just figured this out while i was talking to somebody last week but uh, i'm curating my legacy now that's what i'm doing you know i've got the ability to just sort of make this stuff take the shape you know i just want to get it out there in, in a way that i think might sustain interest in this stuff Sure. I mean, there is interest anyway, but... Uh, oh, no question. I'm having fun with these reissues. I got a... It's a 40th anniversary edition of my first album that's coming out in uh, November. I made a licensing deal with Rock for the Upper Rock hmm. for the first two Warner Brothers albums.
2: Nice. And I, you know? So, that, yeah. I
3: mean, that's what I'm doing. I've been kind of concentrating on that for the last year or so.
2: Well, that's very cool. I bought your debut record when it came out, and I remember that record... And T-Bone Burnett's Trap Door, which was like an EP. Oh, yeah. Those were my two favorite records that year. Both really smart, pop, 60s-influenced works that were kind of went against the grain of maybe what was going on at the time. So anyway, there she goes again. First song from the debut. What a killer tune, man. And Mm -hmm. a killer bridge, which was what caught me off guard the first time. And it's kind of one of your trademarks. And Uh being a fan of Graham Parker, Elvis Costello, and, of course, the Kinks and the Beatles, that tune sucked me right in to listen to the rest of the record. Loved it.
3: There's another little element in that track that you might not have caught, but the drum beat, it's got like triplets on the eighth note, triplets on the hi-hat. You know, really pushes the the whole thing along nicely. And uh, that beat, we got that one from uh, a record called Backfield in Motion by mel and tim and then it's all right by the impressions has eighth note triplets on the hi hat so you know we picked up on that a little bit of this little bit of that just throw sure. it all into the throw it in the mix
1: yeah.
2: yeah yeah it's a great groove it's a great groove for sure
1: you broke that timing rule on uh, some hearts as well which is a gorgeous song i love that song i never heard of it yeah you have no i'm kidding
2: <laughs> well, so and then so the second tune on that record was someday some way right. uh, maybe one of your most well-known songs uh, you know what can you say about that another classic
1: pop shuffle i also had a uh, there was just certain sort of r&b thing going on in that song that made me think that, that even the supreme's diana ross kind of vibe that could have been covered by by them beautifully which one someday some way wow well that would be interesting that, yeah, I, you know.
0: That. I like that idea, Hugh. Hmm. Guess
3: what? There's a song by the Marvelettes called "Someday Some Way." It's not the—it's not my song. Hmm. Okay. But I, you know, I remember that now because I—I I learned that at the time my record was out. I love the Marvelettes and thought I knew all their records, but I didn't know that. I still haven't heard "Someday Some Way" by the Marvelettes. I got to check it out sometime, right?
2: We'll have to Today's to the theater. day. Yeah. So, Cynical Girl, Ray Davies Worthy, uh, or Davis, if you're English lyrically and melodically. Great song. Thank you. Yeah, one of my favorites. Now, here's one that's a little maybe unknown to to some of our listeners. From their downtown record, which I had, which I thought was really good, too. Yeah. Blues is king. Yeah. Killer yeah. melody in kind of a lot of major seven chords, the chord structure that changes keys kind of during the chorus, almost in a Brian Wilson-y kind of a way and then snaps back for the verse. That's really Uh nice writing, man. Really, really cool tune.
3: Yeah, I think it is a really nice piece of music. And, of course, I binged on Brian Wilson for a long time, and I could turn right around tomorrow and start all over again with him.
2: Yeah, me too.
3: If there's any influence of of him in my stuff, it's uh, for obvious reasons, you know?
2: Yeah. So you should have been there from the Good Evening record. Man, that that should have been a hit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a cool tune, man. I love the six four intro thing that kind of keeps you know coming back. It's really that's a nice tune. Great I was one. doing
3: my doing my best, you know, back at that point in time. But it was like it kind of the the situation with Warner Brothers and me was pretty much ruined after the second album. But I had Field uh, Day
2: record. Yeah,
3: you know, after that, I wanted to to leave. I wanted them to drop me and I begged them to do it, but they wouldn't. So I carried on after that. Me, For me, the Warner Brothers stuff falls into group A and group B, you know, post all that and pre all of that. So, hmm. uh, anyway, thanks for the compliment on that song. You know, like people talk about influences on me. I, I just, I just say that it's that I was influenced by like the totality of top 40 radio, like 50s and 60s. It was always eclectic and diverse. You know, if you looked at a chart in the mid 60s, you might see James Brown next to Petula Clark. Yeah, and then sure. you're going to see like Dean Martin and some MOR pop like that. You're going to see like whatever six Motown records are on the charts that week, whatever six British Invasion records are in the charts. But it's just like the whole mix of it. Uh, is what I love and loved then uh, so
2: yeah AM
1: radio was fantastic back in the day man that's what I
3: knew and grew up with yeah mm-hmm. so. sure.
1: I see that affection for the 50s mid-century vibe, even in your artwork your, cover, your album cover artwork we'll get to that but I see that sort of percolating through there
3: yeah that's you know home base is the stuff that I loved as a kid but it's not the, I mean it's not the only thing that I've obsessed over. I have like a big picture view of popular music, you know, from like, I've got records and you guys probably do too, but I have favorite records that were recorded back near the dawn of recorded sound. And then I have favorite records that were done last year or last month. You know what I
2: mean? Yeah, sure. So that's really, you know, big picture is where i'm at you know sure well the other album project i actually wanted to talk about and it was one that i hadn't heard until yesterday was the jagged land i love the stripped down rootsy approach on that record i want to mention the song especially right on time passing through stormy river love that one eventually Mm. great lyrics and long hard road great record man i mean as a as a listen for a whole album that would be my pick really oh, cool nice. they came out in 2009 i believe yeah 2009 <laughs> yeah very cool i'm sorry that i didn't hear it till now you know great cool stuff
3: good thank you yeah i was really trying hard on that one
2: man your guitar playing and your your thoughtfulness of what not to play and what to play um, especially comes to fruition on that record just because it's so stripped down. It's beautiful, man.
3: That's a good point. Cause I, I'm, I'm trying now what, like if I'm, especially if I'm going to play a solo now, I try to play nothing. It's just like, start with the idea of playing nothing mm. and then see if, if, what happens after that. But, you know, I, I like when I was doing uh, the other uh, razor and tie reissue thing, a couple two three years ago that was an album of mine called miracle of science and i actually took a scalpel to some of that just because i I had to and i knew that i
1: could if i wanted to because it's my stuff is that so you can more effectively play it live
3: no it's because i just i don't know it just well anyway what i heard a lot on that record was what I what I call maximalist guitar solos, uh, just really you know like digging in and playing a lot of notes. So I figured like I'm I
2: caught up with my quota of notes for my life, and now I'm just like not trying to play any notes. But so you took the master tapes and re reorganized them
3: on the Miracle of Science reissue. I remixed two songs. That's all, and I, I you oh, know okay. I remixed them and in remixing them I kind of fooled with the arrangements a little bit. Okay. But I mean, I love that album. It's one of my favorite ones of mine, but there were like two tracks where on one of them, I didn't like the drum machine sound. I used to like to play with drum machines and, you know, it was always fun and I'd spend a lot of time on it and get real meticulous on on a track on miracle of science called only an hour ago. I just thought it's too abrasive. It's not a cool sound. It doesn't fit the lyrics. Mm. So I, I thought, what, wouldn't it be cool if I just set up a one microphone and, and played live drums with brushes along to the track? That might be better than the drum machine. But the crazy thing was, I got the ADAT tape out with the multi-track on it. I put the tape in, and there already was a track of me doing that. I must have done it back right after I finished the album. But there was there it was. It was a track of me playing live drums to it. So I just what I wound up doing was put the drum machine here and then the live drums here. You know, I did little stuff like that. Actually not so little, but yeah, but those are the only two times I've ever done that. Like the reissue of number 447. I didn't tamper with anything because you know, there was no need. It's a great album all the way through. And, uh, that's what I'm doing now. I could like, I could do this stuff if I feel like it, you know? It's
2: awesome. So Andy York said, I said, what obscure question can I ask Marshall? that nobody would know about. And he says, he said to ask you about flare gun. And I assume that's different than theme from flare gun. No, that's or, what he no, means. Is that it? Okay. Yeah. See, he, he had a big smiley face. So is there a story there that we should know? It's a cool yeah, if It's that, instrumental. That's a really cool kind of Spanish style instrumental. It's really cool. Thank
3: you. Yeah. That was the first instrumental track that I ever put on a record. And that would have, you know, I, that would have never have flown with an A&R department at a major label. Mm, sure. They wouldn't have let me do it. But, uh, you know, it was just like a little salute to Hank Marvin and the Shadows, kind of. Yeah. yeah. But it's a tune I wrote when I was writing the songs for Downtown. I was, you know, really in a mental rut and a spiritual rut also. But I kept pushing, pushing, you know, and uh, so I had, I had that piece of music. Flare gun, which turned out to be flare gun. Um I tried to get some words onto it. I couldn't think of anything. I asked Jules Shear to write some words. Mm. He wrote a lot of words and they were really good. And I, you know, still feel like I owe him an apology because I just decided that the song was better without any words. That's all. And so I got out my stratocaster and put some Hank Marvin echo on it and off i went but that i did everything on that track except for the mellotron strings
1: i always like to ask uh songwriters such as yourself who excel who who are real wordsmiths um which typically come first for you the the words to which you write the melody or do you find melodies and then herniate to find the the words to fit the melody it's that way i i read the
3: music first and uh That's my favorite part of the whole thing, and then you know my real favorite part of the whole thing is recording it. And if I'm doing it, if I'm starting it up by myself, then you know I really like making the basic track and just kind of getting into that whole sound world. That's my favorite part of it.
0: So I have a question for you. So when we look back at your career and some of the stuff I I highlighted on the intro, you know, the Beatlemania thing, you've obviously been involved in motion pictures. You know, so many records co-writes, et cetera, et cetera. But the one common thread seems to me is just this, like, you know, you stay true to clearly the type of music that you like, um, but there's just this interesting thread of, of pop music, whether it's playing Buddy Holly in Buddy La Bamba, whether it's the Beatlemania thing, whether it's, you know, the Jim Blossom song. I mean, that song is, is an amazing song. came out in the 90s, but it could have came out during the 60s too and been just as true true, yeah the 70s yeah yeah so i think that's a i think that's a compliment to you and obviously maybe do you even realize you're doing that (laughs) i guess you know that you kind of stay true to that is that just who you are or you know
3: i guess so yeah like i said before i grew up with 50s and 60s top 40 yeah and uh i'm not stuck in that era but you know like if you think about you know how many pop songs and song structures have been drilled into my brain right. from all that listening. And the thing is, I'm like, I'm a good listener, you know, like I remember details and I can, I can't hear, I, I mean, I wish that my ear was better than it is, but you know, it, for mostly kind of harmonically simple stuff that was on the radio back then, I, I really could cop, you know, could comprehend it and remember it. So
1: And to deconstruct what you're listening to, to where you can actually hear and break down the parts i always found that fascinating with the beatles and even early elton john it was just great to, to get inside the tracks
3: yeah 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 for sure um, my brain can do that i don't know why but it can so
2: well i got a question for you i know working. i've got seven of my own records out and do producing and stuff and you know you lis- you listen to stuff as you're working on it so much that you hear in all the details and sometimes you can't just hear the song. Do you find yourself when you can go back to say your first record and play the ninth song on it? Can you take yourself instead of wanting to go back and remember and all the details, can you just enjoy it as a cool song now?
3: It just kind of depends, you know, on yeah. the song, whether I can enjoy it or not. But, yeah. uh, but yeah, I guess, sure. You know, like uh, for a few years I played solo a lot mm. At my gigs, I would just go yeah. by, by myself. And so that really, you know, threw everything in relief. All was guitar? Or in a different you, way. Do you play keyboards at all? Not really, uh, you know, not competently. So yeah, just guitar. I'm a, I'm a guitar player and then a wannabe drummer on the side.
1: <laughs> well, I, you know, I always, I always sort of say that Neil Young is not a competent piano player, but what a, a resourceful player he is. For all of he gets stuff. the point across yeah for sure yeah he gets the job done <laughs> he sure did mm-hmm. yeah
0: so i have to ask you about la bamba so you know there's been so many you know music biopics or whatever that have come out over the last seems to be one of the new hot things right to me i always measure it's like is it better than la bamba that's what i it's always the question in my mind uh-huh. the question i uh-huh. ask It's tough to find one that's that good, man. I mean, how did that happen for you, and how did you become Buddy Holly in the movie, and what was that experience like for you?
3: It just was the fact that, you know, I was out there, and I don't know. It just was a lucky thing that came out of left field. I had a friend from high school who was out in Hollywood, a guy named Carl Bressler. I'll check his name. The Carl Bressler, and he's in some movies, you know, like he's in... One where he's in a scene with Liza he's in one where he's gets beat up I think by Kevin Spacey <laughs> and uh, anyway Carl you know called me one day and said that he would heard a rumor that they were going to ask me to play Buddy Holly in a movie and I I don't know if I, I like panicked a little bit or something or I just kind of went well, me? Why? You know, hmm. or you know, I was uh, hearing that all the time back then. You know, oh, he's the new Buddy Holly.
0: Okay, mm-hmm.
3: or seriously, people would write that. You know,
0: right?
3: And it, it like it, you know, made me feel weird somehow. Hmm. But it, that was easy to do back then. But anyway, uh, I, I was sort of ambivalent about the idea at first. But that was one instance where I got saved from my own stupidity. <laughs> By smarter people than myself, who you know said, we'll shut up and do it, okay?" You mm. know, which is the right thing to do. And uh
0: well, you were so good in it, man. Not yeah, just man. the singing; the singing's great. The 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 part that you would expect to be good is good, but just the acting alone. I mean, I, it's fantastic. I mean, you thank you. Very yeah, very I don't know proud. what happened. You know, I I, I I was in the scene.
3: Yeah, I don't know how I did any of that, but you know, it's just like, well, I'm here. I'm here. I better show
1: up. You know,
0: <laughs> that's great
1: that comment I, I don't know how it happened because you listen so carefully to music and you deconstruct music as you're hearing it do you think you were doing that as you watched your favorite actors and your and and other people who were good at um conveying you know a, a presence or a personality do you think it came to you because you've been fascinated by actors other than yourself or other than believing that you could be an actor
3: well, nah, you know, if it was unconscious, if it was like that, because I didn't really ever think that I wanted to be an actor, honestly. But, but I know what you mean. I mean, that's movies is another thing.
0: Well, super cool. That's it. It's I had to ask about that. I got to watch it again.
3: Yeah, I love that it happened, and I, you know, it was my second time on a film set that year because earlier. That same year, we were in Peggy Sue Got Married again, a Buddy Holly reference, right? Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's right.
3: So, anyhow, at least at when I did La Bamba, I'd already been on a movie set once. So,
0: well, before you got on, uh, Dane and I were talking about uh Rock Hard, of course, too. I mean, we can't, we can't not talk Walk about Hard that. or Walk Hard. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But that was amazing too. Walk Hard. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I don't know. That was nice. I mean, the movies, the, the whole it's thing it's with the movies has been has been a good thing for me yeah. over the years. A lot of, you know, the Jim Blossom song was a, was a song written for a movie. Soundtrack. Oh, that's right,
0: it was. What that was uh what was the name of that movie?
3: Empire Records.
0: Yes, was, was Liv yeah. Tyler in that movie, right? Was she in that
3: movie? She was. Be, you yeah. know, I've never seen the movie, but... yeah, I don't remember the movie. I
2: remember the tune though.
0: Yeah, uh-huh.
3: it's a cult favorite. But
0: yeah,
2: anyway, yeah, anyway. Cool. Well, the Dewey Cox story, <laughs> your your demo. I listened to that. It's fabulous. I'm just. Oh, thank you. Yeah.
0: That was, brings, you know, brings
2: a smile. It is what it is, you know. It's great. That was Absolutely. cool. After I wrote the theme song to that, you had to be chuckling while you were writing it. I mean, it's a call. Oh, I, I was. You know, I, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I,
3: I was. <laughs> I I loved the script when they sent it to me. You know, it really looked amazing on paper. It's one. You know, the it, it, I saw it later, and it was a little tainted because I knew everything that was going to happen when I mm. saw it the first time. But I guess if you didn't know what was going to happen, then it would blown oh, your yes. mind. Oh, yes. I read oh, the script. Yes. I'm just like, this can't miss. I read the scene where he slices his brother down the center with a sword. And I'm like, this is going to be a smash. But, you know, <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know the they like writers. a lot of songs. There were a lot of songs in the movie. And the way the script was, is that they had the titles for each song. They knew the titles that they wanted. So they would ask songwriters, well, why don't you try this one, you know? So then they would get 20 songs, different songs of that title, right? And the first one I did was one called Take My Hand, which didn't wind up in the movie, but, you know, I finished Take My Hand and I thought, I nailed it. They're going to love it. So I sent it in and they said, oh, this is great. Why don't you take a crack at the theme song? Not knowing that they're asking 50 other people that to write a song that. called Walk Hard, but mm-hmm. som- somehow the one I did was the one, well, I know why they, they Picked it, but anyway, that I love. It was fun, you know. It was just a great experience all around.
1: Yeah, it's great. Right. What Warner
3: office were you dealing with? What with Burbank or? Wow, that's a really good question. It, it, I was, I'm telling you, it is. It, no, I was an East Coast signing. Okay, and I didn't know that that was a problem, or possibly a problem. I didn't know that, but it, it turned out to be one. But yeah, it was a, I was I was an East Coast signing. East the East Coast office. It was explained to me many years later. They were like kind of like the poor cousin of Warner Brothers, right?
1: I didn't know. I didn't know any of that. But. Well, I, I was fortunate when I lived out in in L.A. for an unwitting sixteen years. I planned to stay for six <laughs> months. I had a lot of dealings in the hallowed halls of Burbank Warner's, and it was a fabulous campus. I mean, I call it. Yeah, yeah, camp. yeah. It, the way it was built, the way everything kind of looked in on itself, it was a it was a a, a hornet's nest of activity. And, and yeah and good cross-pollination and i actually think you know if, if this if honestly if not that your career had any issues at all but i think signing with that side of the country that was a pretty hip label out west um on a lot of levels
3: and in new york too you know i, I mean I, I, I yeah that it was great and i i like the people that worked at that at at that place they really liked to be at work you know it was a great workplace and a real good atmosphere and uh, same in New York too and I met a lot of uh, some of my favorite people I've ever known I, I met at, at the New York office and in the Burbank office Yeah, there's just, just the ones that I hated that, that gave me problems <laughs> oh,
0: <yeah. laughs> Man, I hated the people I hate giving me problems right. you know? I hate them for that yeah. it's gonna happen it's yeah. gonna happen <laughs> So we always like to talk about album covers because of Hugh's uh, vast catalog of of legendary album covers. Um, Mm. So so I'm going to pass it over to Hugh and let him him take the reins for a minute here.
1: Sometimes I kind of get on these podcasts and I think, oh, it doesn't look like this guy cares about artwork too much. And I kind of dread asking. Clearly, you have had a hand in because your level of wit in your lyrics is evident, I'm presuming. But when I looked at what's in the bag, what a beautiful cover that is. It's just so sinister and whimsical at the same time you know um i may be overthinking it as a lot of people do with my own covers but life's too short just featuring the dog somehow made sense You think of dog years um good evening just the flashlight artwork on the bicycle oh yeah just the fact that you're acknowledging twilight and the you know the power of opening the camera and a light you have a great sort of selfie facing sort of fo- photo style too and then of course um the one, uh, what was it? A miracle? It looks like it c- could have been a Team Beat '65 cover for for Sandy Nelson or something. That's why I acknowledge your your possible fascination with mid century, even even the tableware on the um, on the Marshall Crenshaw cover, right. With the sunglasses, that just First looks record, like yeah. you would have chosen those props.
3: I did have you know I had a hand in with everything I mean as you were going through that list I just thought of all the great people that I worked with Uh and how lucky I am you know but uh, I mean let me see the first album the sort of like the set design for the album cover on the first album was a guy named Gary Green and his girlfriend Christina Delancey and they had also done the artwork for the first record I ever made which was just single on the Shake Records label Christina and Gary, you know, I think with my own, my role in that was just to say, Oh, I like this picture, you know, like choose the photograph, I think is what I did. But they, you know, they were, they were kind of taking their cue from their impressions of, of me, you know, like they were trying to do something that they thought fit my character and personality. So they got all these old dishes and put them on the table. And then, but the guy with the, with the lightsaber on good evening was a guy named, I think Dean Chamberlain. Uh But I don't have the name right anymore. But he also did the very same thing on my fourth album, which is called Mary Jean and Nine Others. Not not my favorite album title that I came up with. But anyway, there's light painting on that one too. And that one, that's my favorite album cover of ours. It just looks like an LSD trip or something. And uh, I mean that in a good way.
1: But I like your photojournalistic, you know, like I say, you, it, the, the random, ca- candid feel. A lot of people get very narcissistic when it comes to themselves on album covers. But, yeah. you know, when I look at the uh, wild, exciting times, I mean, it just feels, it's incredible. It's a lovely, it's a lovely moment. And, and yet, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that's just a snapshot. Well, yeah, it is. It, yeah. That's me and my brother, but yeah.
3: you know what, what happened to me was I hated the cover of my second album so much, Field Day, and that was the time when I left it entirely in other people's hands, so like I never did that again. Wait, wait, you're so,
1: the the with the Volkswagen bus?
3: No, the one I hate is the one where it's just my big giant head.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I look like, you know,
3: it looks like a light bulb with glasses or something, and then uh in the background, is a, is a montage that I, I didn't do. But I went on a vacation after we finished the second album, my wife and I and my brother, too. We all went to Prague, Czechoslovakia, because my brother's girlfriend was working on a movie there. And we just thought, well, this would be amazing. So we went over there. And then I came back and I was presented with the mock-up of the album cover. And I, and I just said, I hate this. you got to be kidding me. Yeah. And the guy the guy mm-hmm. said, the manager it was, he, he said, well, you know what, if you want to change it, it'll delay the release of the album by two weeks. Like that was a big deal, you know, and he said, then, you know, you got your touring schedule. And I thought, oh, OK, two weeks. Well, I guess I better just say yes to this. And I like regretted it every day of my mm-hmm. life since then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but that again, I learned my lesson from that. You know, you learned so, your lesson. did, yeah, did that like again. It. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I got a one really obscure question, and and this I remember from when you were in Atlanta. I was with Andy York, and we had a conversation. God, I don't know, man, seven or eight years ago, at least. The Tom Wilson. Well, yeah, you were making a movie or going to make a movie about Tom Wilson, the producer for the Velvets and Dylan, yeah, Eric Burden and the New Animals. Country Joe McFish, Fish, a couple of records later, period stuff from no. them. I'm still doing it. Are you still doing it? I'm. Yeah, this is the year that it's going to get finished. But I was talking to my son last night
3: about it. He was. He wanted an update, and uh, while I was talking to him, I realized that he was. He's twenty-three or four now. I'm sorry that I can't remember the exact number, but uh, he was thirteen when I started talking about doing it. So, like a, a lot of his life, right? Hmm. So what stage is it in i mean good question uh there's an editor and there's a director and then there's my producer me and then there's other producers too and uh i also have a writer collaborator great amazing team and uh i've got like a like a little bit of an agenda left of interviews that i personally want to do But it's a really short list now. It's down to like a list of three or four. I'm kind of laying the groundwork for when we really get the money and the real budget to do it. So I have some funding, but uh, anyhow, what I'm just kind of telling myself now is I'm laying the groundwork for the director. But I've been creating content for it now since 2016 and doing research and gathering content for it since 2016. Wow. Uh, I really feel like, It's going to be this year, and I mean that.
2: Cool. So to our listeners, it's the guy that uh, was the producer on Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61, the first three Velvet Underground records.
3: The only thing on Highway 61 he did was like a Rolling Stone. Okay, that's right. He bailed after that, didn't he? He was Dylan's producer from Masters of War, you know, like the last session for the Freewheeling album Mm. because there were like six sessions for it. and Wilson came on board at the last one, and then he did the next two albums, next three albums, which, if you think about that sequence and that chunk of of Dylan's chronology, it's, like, super, super significant.
2: Oh, yeah, times they are a change in, uh, another side, bringing it all back home. It's it's weird to sort of put it this bluntly, but Wilson took
3: credit for convincing Bob to go, go electric. Yeah. And he, you know, he did begin to av- advocate for it Right at the start, you know, back in 63, he was pushing the idea, pushing it, pushing and
2: pushing it. What's the Dylan tune where there's a band that was a 45 out that came out in 62? Uh, yeah, yeah. Karina Karina. Is, there's a whole band on that record. That's right.
3: And was that Tom Wilson? No, it's John Hammond. And Bob, you know, later said that he wasn't into that and it wasn't, that's, you know, that's, they resisted the idea when Wilson brought it up because they'd already done it. Mm didn't like the outcome of it but uh anyhow he he was a game changer in popular music yeah the first
2: velvets record for pete's sake man well
3: he didn't just produce that record he he enabled it to exist and to come out into the world because wilson's gig at that time was he was the head of the pop recording recording division of mgm records right and he and you know so there were the records that have his name on them as producer but he also had to green light other signings like Richie Havens and, you know, Tim and whoever else you can think of mm, sure. that recorded for that. You know, it was all, he had to sign off on it. Otherwise I didn't, didn't realize
2: that. Yeah. get onto the
3: label. Yeah. He was a, you know, he was a bit, he was a power broker and a gatekeeper and he was the only one on earth at that time that was going to give the Velvet Underground a shot. And the same with Frank Zappa <laughs> and Zappa right. was, said so himself. He said, we got turned down by everybody, which is good because we wound up with tom wilson he already knew who tom wilson was <laughs> but anyway before any of the rock stuff and the folk stuff wilson had a, a jazz record label that he established himself in uh 1955 and uh they put out the first cecil taylor album and the first sun Ra album oh, wow. so he's just it's provocateurs when you look at his yeah, bullet points, and then Simon and Garfunkel. There would be no such thing as them, right? If it wasn't for Tom Wilson, that's that's literally true. He overdubbed the band on
2: "Sound of Silence." But before
3: right? that, he produced the you know the the instruments that were overdubbed onto an acoustic version of the song. Wilson produced that one too, right? Mm. And I know the whole backstory. <laughs> I, you know, I, I I can I've got every all of this double triple corroborated. You mm. know. If it was sometimes you read the story of the rise to glory of a musical artiste and you find out that it's just it's one person hmm. who yeah. gave them the shot that they needed and there right. wasn't going to be anybody else to do it at that time. And Wilson was that was that gatekeeper for uh, all the people I named. Yeah, you know he just he's just a giant, right? and th- that's what killed me that's what killed me when i figured out who this guy was i'm like whoa why don't i know about all this i'm right. supposed to be like knowledgeable about this stuff and i never put this together and it's like come on you know it's mm. a giant story
2: he was a, he was a giant and where's the recognition people you got to finish this thing up man yeah i'm gonna i am going to can
1: not wait to see it <laughs> yeah yeah it's awesome thank you yeah thanks so apart from being um that giant who could recognize the entire artist, did he get in, into the weeds and start, did he act as a r on a lot of levels or no?
3: That's a good question. He was, you know, he, his thing was like, he said that the, the, his approach was to get a bunch of people in a room that all, you know, know what they're doing and sort of act as a referee. You know, he started as a jazz producer. So the ethos was you do the recording session make sure everybody's comfortable and they can do what they do. And then later the producers, the guy who stands back later and judges it, you know, decides what, what to do with the recording session, which is, which is the right take. He does that in, uh, in isolation, Wilson. That was how, you know, when he came up as a record producer in those days. So when he did rock records, it was the same thing. He just, his take was to have the, his his ethos was to have the recording session and then, he and his engineer would like figure out what it was all supposed to mean and what to do with it. Hmm. We crafted.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. Pre Roy Haley, right?
3: He, Wilson gave Roy Haley his start. Oh, wow. Wilson said in an interview that I have more than one interview, he said, yeah, I brought, he was proud that he had brought Roy Haley up from the editing room. and was the first producer to use him on a session.
1: Hmm. Hmm. He had ears, that boy. <laughs> yeah. You think?
3: No, forget it. It's Tom Wilson, you know, mm-hmm. everybody that cares about popular music, especially mm-hmm. in our age demographic, should know a lot about Tom Wilson. They're, they're going to know a lot about him.
0: That's yeah. Awesome. Good, man. Yeah, that's great. Fantastic. It's fun.
3: I mean, I'm having such a great time with it, too. You can hear how enthusiastic I am, right? Yeah. yeah. Cool.
0: Great.
1: There's also uh, the movie in the works right now with Tom Hanks playing the, the, uh, the colonel on that oh, oh, really the 68 comeback special which is obviously the nbc oh. when elvis kind of invented uh un- the unplugged in the round with his guitar yeah yeah sure that was uh headed up by director steve binder and steve was did hullabaloo and all these shows back in the day he would yeah they produced Patula clark and all these people so when when it became evident that he wasn't digging, being in Vegas and Hawaii while the Beatles were soaring, he was just playing all these kind of B-movies. Elvis said, you got to do something. So Steve came up with this idea of doing a special. The, well, the colonel's first idea was to put him in a cardigan with kids around. It was supposed to be, he wanted it to be a Christmas special. He wanted to do an Andy, Andy Williams with him with, you know, a fireside scene and so on. <laughs> he yeah. said no. So... That would have sucked. Yeah, so, but it, it really launched his career again. But don't you think though? Did
2: they not dress him kind of up like Jim Morrison in 1968? He'd never worn leather no, but, before, had uh, he? Hmm. Morrison already featured that in his career at that point. I don't know. Yeah, Morrison ador- he started out with the yeah. leather. Yeah. So hmm. I, I thought I always thought the pelv was kind of doing a, a Jimbo there. Hmm. Maybe looking for drool No, it was still great. Hmm. No, it was. He, Red was, Red Red great. He was great. On, he was great on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I it. I watched it when it was
3: on. I, I saw it. I did on the on the night. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Eight years great. old, checking it, it out. Very excited.
0: So, on that note, on the live front, a couple live-related questions. So, I know you've gone out and performed with the Smithereens uh, since Pat's passing. How did that come about? Um, doing that.
3: I well, it's, it it kind of like uh, took shape after this memorial show that happened for Pat. They were the band was supposed to be on a double bill show with Patty Smythe and Scandal at the Comp Basie theater in Red Bank, New Jersey Mm -hmm. and then hosted by little Steven. And then, but then Pat uh, died during the December before the show was supposed to happen. So they decided to make it into a multi-artist tribute show to Pat. And it was Mm -hmm. like a really memorable uplifting kind of thing, you know, for me and for everybody uh, You know, it was really like a beautiful thing it's, And that's funny, you know Sometimes someone's death the, the aftermath of it can be Anyway, I remember when my dad died We had this amazing party for him And uh, anyway, Pat passed away And I played three songs with the band, with the guys that night With Mike, Dennis, and, and Jim And I really liked it, you know And they really liked it so uh, a little while later, Dennis reached out to me, asked me if I would do a TV show with them that they were supposed to do. And so I did. And then maybe another month or six weeks later after that, he asked if I would do some tour dates with them. So I did. Because, you know, I'm still in the aftermath of the memorial yeah, service. I'm sure. still trying to keep keep the buzz going. And uh, anyway, I've just been kind of, you know, I get the phone calls and the emails, and I just say, "Yeah, okay, I'll do it." And because uh, it's, you know, it's just like really turned into this fun thing. That's cool, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're all friends. I mean, I've known those guys always, like since forever.
0: Such a good band, man. They're yeah, a great band. Really underrated, in my opinion. I mean, there's certainly I always find that big fans of rock music and, and folks that that follow it certainly know the Smithereens, but man, there's so many good songs there. So People days. come out to
3: the shows. I'll tell you that, and um, mm, yeah, I do. And so, uh, I, it's just fun. I mean, how how can I resist? You know, they're just a great rock and roll band. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember they opened up for um, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Oh yeah. We and you know, obviously the Tom Petty fans knew who they were, but it's one of those bands that like I think just a lot of the crowd maybe didn't too. But just being re- you could see people just being introduced to them for the first time and then people being reminded how great they are. So you were at, you were at one of those shows Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. very cool. yeah mm-hmm. Anyway, one, and one more live question. Uh, what was the first show that you went to as a fan that you paid when it bought a ticket for that you were excited about as a fan?
3: Oh boy. Uh, well, I used to see local bands in the Detroit area, but I think the f- like the first big time rock and roll band that I ever saw. But the thing is, I didn't specifically buy a ticket to see them. They were at the Michigan State Fair, but it was Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Oh, wow. I saw them. Yeah, I saw them. And, you know, at the time I liked them. And uh, yeah. so it was great to see them. And they had, uh, you know, he was, Lee, Gary was hooked up with Leon Russell. So there were all these, t- all these Tulsa guys in the band who could really play, you know, like there was. Was Leon there? No, he wasn't. But the, like the drummer was either Jimmy Karstein or Jim Keldner. I can't. I don't. I can't say. Oh, but wow. like the guitar player was uh, a guy named Tom Triplehorn, who was like a kind of a James Burton disciple. It was just great. And uh, like Carl Carl Radle would have been yeah. in the band at that oh, time. Oh, yeah. So I saw them. You know, no, that was really a gas. I loved it. But then mm. after that, the Detroit band started to happen, and I was a big fan of some some of those in particular and uh
2: yeah so who did you see from that era back then like mc5 or any of those guys back in the day i time? did i saw the
3: mc5 about four times i saw the stooges at once but that was crazy memorable and uh but there were so many you know like the detroit scene at, in the summer of 1969 it really looked like it was you know liverpool in the in the whatever it was it was a it was a really big deal and it looked like it was going to just break wide open nationally, which it never did, but who cares? You know, it was really so much fun to... Tell us about the Stooges when you saw them. I went to this thing called the Rock and Roll Revival at the State Fairgrounds, and there was a big show all day long. I can't remember who the very first band was to play, but it was, it was all the Grandy Ballroom bands all in one day. And so that any of them that I hadn't seen before... I'd already seen the MC5 a couple times by then. But all the others that I had never seen because I was too young to go to the Grandy, they were all there in one day. So the Stooges, they were like third from last to play. I just had, you know, I I was completely uh, stunned, honestly. It was like, this is a whole new kind of show business, right? (laughs) Sure. I mean, Iggy, he was amazing, you know? And it was also like a big crowd, like, Twenty thousand people. I mean, really, and and they. So that's my only time that I ever saw them. So uh, you know, they wow. they they could command a crowd of that size, and uh it was right when their first album was about to come out. All the songs from their first album, they just played all those. And I want to be your dog. I mean, the lyrics. Oh yeah, it's great. Everything Iggy's. Mm-hmm. You know the way he would. You know, flip off the audience and the whole. I mean, it's. It just was it was wild, you know?
0: Like, I'm mad.
3: No, this is a whole new kind of show business right here. So I'm glad, <laughs> I'm I, glad I saw bad. them. But then there was also um, like Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes. I, I really liked them. They were great. MC5 played. That was the last time I ever saw them. That was when the Back in the USA album was coming out. But then I also saw the Bonzo Dog Duda Band that day. Oh wow! I saw the James Gang with Joe Walsh. I saw Doctor John. The Doctor John the Night Tripper. Yeah, they played at like two o'clock in the afternoon. and wow, uh, man! Grand Funk Railroad. Grand Funk Railroad. Their their world debut, which was a debacle. Um, <laughs> really? You know, that's my is my, my that's my fanboy story. What a day!
2: It. What You're a no day kidding. for music, man! Yeah, it was cool.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Marshall. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was great. Great. You guys are my you guys are my
3: peers, you know, so thank you for uh, inviting me. Yeah,
2: of course. course.
0: And congrats that you have so much of your own music back. That's a good Yeah, man. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you. Be well guys. Yeah. Take care. Take care, Marshall. Bye Marshall.